All Hallows Day, if nothing else, reminds us that we are not the first. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that we're unlikely to be the last either. So to use his or her words, at the start of chapter 12, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But we got to get there. Our first question tonight has to do with faith itself, right? We use the word all the time, both in the church and outside of the church. It's not an uncommon word at all, but what exactly does faith mean? How would you define it if you had to? I think for most of my life, as I thought about that question, I thought I thought of faith as something that's more like a synonym for hope is probably how I would have put it. It's something that I want to be true and that I also trust just might come to pass. I want it to be true, and I think, like, just maybe it's going to happen. A simple illustration that is very, very real for me tonight. In just a little while, at 8.09 tonight, Game 4 of the World Series is going to begin. And it's going to begin in Atlanta, Georgia. And the reason it's in Atlanta, Georgia, is because my beloved Atlanta Braves, or as the New York Times has begun referring to them, the Atlanta baseball team, um, is in there. We're in the World Series for the first time since I've been an adult, since 1999. I was a senior in high school the last time they were in a World Series. When I was 13, the Braves won the World Series, and back then I thought that this was something that would just keep happening all the time, right? Like, I was 13, my team won, this is cool, this I suppose is just like a thing that everybody experiences every six or seven or eight years, you know, maybe every year, really. But it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened in the 26 years since then. And now there's this weird coincidence this year, right? Because I have a daughter, my oldest daughter, who is exactly 13. And I feel like it's fate at this point, right? Like we have to, we have to pull this thing off. But I got to tell you, I got to tell you the truth. I have never had faith in this team. Not once this whole season. I watch every game. I follow every game. And Meredith and Evangeline would both tell you, I have given up on this Braves team like 20 times this season and said they're trash, they're garbage, they're not any good, they have no chance. I still am pretty sure that they have no chance, and yet we're two wins away. And they're probably just doing this to make a fool of me, I would think. Anyways, who knows how tonight's going to go. When it comes to faith, though, if we use that old definition of like a hope that you trust, I have had none. I just don't believe in them. I still don't. I don't have that kind of faith. But I also think that that version of faith, where it's just a thing that you hope for, that you think maybe will happen, is a pretty bad one. And here's why. It's the Braves are a helpful example. The reason is because the Braves aren't God, right? They don't know if they're going to win tonight either. There's nothing they can particularly do to make that happen with any kind of certainty. So to trust them to do it, to trust them to win, to hope they'll do it, they're going to do it. I think that's really more about my affection for them than it is their power. I think faith, as we often think of it then, is something closer to being a fan than it is anything else. It's a desire for an uncertain outcome to happen. It's not something that you should be trusting. But in the first lines of Hebrew chapter 11, we find another definition of faith. 
that might help us have a clearer sense of why exactly we can put real trust into it. And Sheer, he writes this. By the way, I want to know, especially since I've just talked about the Braves for like three minutes, the desire in this suit to do this whole thing with a southern accent is like getting really overwhelming. <laughs> like, it's getting really hard. So if that happens, please try to stay, try to stay serious if you can. I didn't mean for it to happen. <sighs> okay. Uh, Hebrews 12, <laughs> 12, 1 through 2, actually 11, 1 through 2. Since we are surrounded, oh, sorry, that's the wrong page. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Now, faith is this. This is the definition we get. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. You probably have heard this. And assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What is seen was not made out of what was visible. That first part there, the confidence part, gets to the trouble that we're having, right? Faith can't be a synonym for hope, according to this definition, because it is meant to be the anchor for hope. It's confidence in what we hope for. But the question really is, like, how do you do that reasonably? How can you reasonably have such confidence? And I'll ask again, how can we reasonably have confidence in a thing we're not sure about? I think the key is in the last parts of verses 1 and 3 here, where the author talks about this stuff about what we do not see, the weird part that you might have skipped over even in reading because it's not clear totally what it means, this bit about what we do not see. In his commentary on the letter to the Hebrews, F.F. F. Bruce writes this. He writes that just as our physical eyesight is the sense that gives us evidence of the material world, faith is the sense that gives us evidence of the invisible or spiritual world. I thought this was interesting. A suggestion then is that it's another kind of sight by which we discern a reality that our eyes are unable to measure in any particular way. So, since we're celebrating Halloween tonight, it makes sense to tie this to another horror movie, right? Faith then is a kind of sixth sense. So, let's play this all out, right? As we all know, our five basic senses are the tools that we use for gathering input about the world around us and that our brain then, look at this handy diagram, I don't even need to explain it. Our brain then processes those senses that come in and then that gives us an experience of reality. Our eyes don't really see things, right? They don't really see things clearly or perfectly as they actually are. As a colorblind and nearsighted person, I can attest to this. Instead, what they do is they suck in light, right? And then they translate that into a signal that goes in my brain. My brain makes some kind of a visual image out of it. And then all the other senses work the same way. My skin is not actually touching stuff. I'm like feeling the electrical impulses of things, and that goes in, it goes through the nerves, and my brain tells me what that feels like, but what I think it feels like is probably different than what you think it feels like, but we've just all agreed to call it furry or something, and that's how this all works. And, and the point is this, that we are always dealing on some level with what we might call a mediated experience of the world. We're always dealing with a mediated experience. Our brain's putting a picture together which approximates what we think is there. And sometimes our brain gets this totally wrong, right? Sometimes we see like the monster in the shadows of our room, right? We hear sounds that aren't there. And so we have to do this tricky thing. We have to apply reason to the stuff that our brain is telling us is there. 
and then we have to decide whether we think what we see or hear is probable or not. Is this realistic? So if that's how our senses work, then the idea here is that faith is a kind of sense that we use to discern aspects of reality that our other five senses aren't able to gather, which is to say that faith is aimed at something bigger than the stuff around us. The author of Hebrews anticipates that the philosophical influence of the Greeks on his or her readers might cause them to scoff at something seemingly so unreasonable. And so they write this, this thing that we read a minute ago. They write, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And this is a pretty good defense if you stop and think about it. Here's what they mean, right? No matter who you are or what your theory of existence is, at some point you recognize that there must have been a time before there were observable things in the universe, right? Sometime before observable stuff. There was a time, in other words, when your five senses would have been useless to you because nothing existed in that kind of a way. And the author says it's notable that Jewish faith teaches something curious about how God created the world, right? God creates the observable world with what? He does it with words. So from something without concrete substance, concrete substances are all made. Now, this is super heady, I get it, but the point is this. Faith is the sense that we use to think about and understand things that we cannot physically observe. And we know that faith works because we actually use faith to grasp stuff all the time. Faith, in a way, is the actual tool that we use to reason stuff out. And so, when we talk about faith, we're not talking about something imaginary, and we're not talking about something so individualized and personal that it becomes meaningless. We're talking instead about the way that we sense and understand the stuff that is behind the stuff that we see. And all people everywhere have had that sense of the stuff behind the stuff we see. And they've connected that in their own cultures and in their own ways to God, to meaning, to purpose, to value, to morality. Kenny, you're doing the thing again. This isn't a philosophy class. Fair. That's a fair point. So let's get practical with it, right? What is love, actually? Not what is love, actually, I know. The answer to that is that movie that Meredith watches. But what, what is it, right? Is it real? Is it real? You sense it. You feel it in yourself. You receive it from others, but you can't measure it in any way. And yet, and yet, we put our trust and hope into it all the time with people. And we do that not blindly. We do that somehow discerningly with something more than just this wish, like the Braves winning the World Series, with something more than just some empty wish giving us confidence in it. We have faith. We have faith in those we love. When we say we have faith in God, we are saying that we sense and discern Him 
beneath and behind things. And we can sense His character and His will for the world, much as we sense our emotional ties with somebody. And then our religion gives names to those things that we sense, to the person that we sense, and ties our perception of all of that to stories that help us to better understand and live with that faith that we are using. And the author of Hebrews, I think, puts it like this, if you want to better trust what your faith perceives, you can remember the saints. You can remember the martyrs. Celebrate All Hallows' Day. Their stories can help you trust your own faith. To that end, the author spends all of chapter 11 recalling the stories of other people's faith, of moments when they trusted the story of Israel's God and acted on that trust at great personal risk. He or she writes that by faith Abel, who was Adam's son, brought God a better offering than Cain did because he trusted his sense of how God had made things. And if God had shared with us his most precious creation, then we ought to give back to him what is most precious to us. And based on that sense of who God is and how God works, Abel presented an offering to God which God found acceptable. Abel didn't know that through his five senses. He felt it through his faith. Then, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Noah could not see or sense rain was coming, but he trusted what God was revealing to him, not in his five senses, but in this other way. He trusted that completely. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And when he got there, by faith, Sarah, his wife, became pregnant, although she was long past childbearing age. And then by faith, their son Isaac passed the blessing and the promise, which none of them had yet received, on to his own sons. And eventually, by faith, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God and persevered because he saw him who is invisible, the text says. The author goes on and on in chapter 11, telling the stories of people who acted on things they sensed but could not see, not because doing this was irrational or because it was unreasonable, but because the sense they did have of God, of God's desires for the world, that sense was strong enough that they put their trust into what it was revealing to them even if it costs them everything. So if our question is, what is faith anyway? I think the best answer, at least for tonight, is not a hope or wishes or even some arrogant confidence that we will see a victory if we just believe hard enough in it. No, it is that faith is the sense we use to discern God's will and God's story. Faith is the sense we use to see what God is up to. But what happens when that big story of God 
doesn't satisfy everything that we are hoping for in our much smaller and shorter stories. Near the end of chapter 11, the author of Hebrews writes this, after all that long list of the great heroes of faith, they write, there were also others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. Even in their lifetimes, some people's faith was not manifested in the material world, right? Which leads to this amazing, amazing truth about our spiritual history as Christians. And it is that the people who guarded and the people who told and retold the stories of the heroes of Israel's history, those keepers of the stories were not apparently daunted by the open endings that so many of the stories have. They were not scared off by what looked time and time again like failures in those stories. People who risked everything, put all of their hope in an outcome that they never saw, that their children never saw, that their grandchildren never saw, that still, at the time the stories are being read and written in the first century, that still has not been seen. And we keep writing it down. Why do you do that? Why keep writing a story with a bad ending? The author of Hebrews says that these heroes went to their graves trusting that God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's what they say at the end of chapter 11. Which means this, I think. This is the answer to the question. The stories, their stories, are good enough because their stories were never about them. Because, and this is a place where we can interact with the question too, what is your faith? your sense of God and how God is and what God is up to. If you use that sense, even just sitting here in this pew right now, if you use that sense, what does that sense tell you about the nature of the things underneath and behind the world? What does it tell you about how God works? My hunch is that we all know deep, inside ourselves, that the story that we are living has to be bigger than we are. And the challenge I think we wrestle with when we look at something like Hebrews 11 is are we humble enough to accept a smaller part? This gets us to the turn in the, in the sermon, if we're talking about construction here. Like, what is this thing that we've written and are talking about? This is the turn. I think the American church is in desperate danger of losing the faith. Not because people are asking too many questions, but because people are peddling certainty that we don't actually have In a desire to take a stand, in a desire to fight, we are pretending to know things about God and God's plans for this world that we are meant to hold in faith. 
And I think what that reveals about us, I fear, is that we don't respect what faith is. We don't think it's good enough or real enough. We hate mystery, and we're embarrassed by it as Christians. But what we are trying to hold with certainty is so, so much bigger than we are. And in pursuit of it, in pursuit of this thing, we are abandoning the kind of humility that I think the author of Hebrews is actually calling for. Instead of trying to muscle our beliefs into tangible existence, we need, we need to ask, are we prepared to live and work and grow in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of questions, in the midst of a chapter of the story that we may not see anything close to the end of? in our lifetime. Because like our ancestors, we might well go to our graves without seeing the final act of what God is doing. The question is, why is this a cause for concern? Why is that a problem? I think instead of fearing our own irrelevance, we have a chance to discover that our faith, our faith, can play a small part in adding to the bigger story. And that, in turn, when we're added into that bigger story, that our faith can encourage the faith of others and the generations still to come. We read that back at the start of this chapter, right? Now we'll come back to it. Hebrews 12, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is a rich and a curious passage, I think. The faith of our ancestors helps us to both hold on to what we believe and to remember that we have our own long race to run, right, within the longer race that God has laid out. And what can keep us going in this long race that we're running, right? Well, what is the church's advantage in this long race? It's that we actually have this example of Jesus that we can look to He's been seen, which for a long time he hadn't been. His resurrection has been witnessed, which is exciting, changes everything. And those things are certainly anchors for us as we wrestle with the doubts that are going to accompany our faith. But even more importantly than all that, Jesus has gone on ahead of us too. He didn't just stay in the first century. He's gone on ahead of us, which means that it is still useful for us to look at his example, to fix our eyes on Him, and to let what we see keep us away from the temptations to arrogance and ego that the author is writing this whole letter to these people to try and fight. So, how does that work? How does looking at Jesus help you fight that temptation to arrogance? Well, if we actually look at Jesus and Jesus' own faith, what do we see? I think we see confidence, for sure. Jesus is a confident guy. 
He's on a mission. He speaks and he acts with wisdom and with authority. The Scriptures tell us over and over. But we also see something that we don't like to talk about as much with Jesus. is a pretty fair amount of questions as well. He prays over and over to seek his Father's will. He wrestles. He even asks for God's will to change. In Jesus, we have the most tangible answer, the most tangible answer about who God is and what God wants that has ever been. He's all five senses. Somebody could smell him if they wanted to once upon a time. Like, this was a thing. Jesus was tangibly there. And even in that moment when all the five senses that we tend to trust and love so much are telling us everything we need to be, the people who were there, the people who could see and touch and smell and hear Jesus, those people still doubted him, and those people still abandoned him. I think that teaches us that even though Jesus gives us absolute permission to have confidence in him, which we can and we should. I do not think he gives us permission to be certain about him. I think it's an issue of trust, in other words, not an issue of knowledge. Of course, that can feel pretty scary to take heart on Halloween Eve. He's still God after all, right? So what have we learned? What have we learned to delight in our questions about him? To delight in the possibility that he's bigger than we think rather than fear those questions and a desire to like cling on to that certainty. In other words, what if we had confidence in who he is revealing himself to be instead of coveting the certainty and the knowledge? that will let us control it. I think that, of course, gets us into what we can do, right? We can live in relationship with God. That's not cheesy to say. It's the truth. We can live in relationship with God. We fix our eyes on His example, and we hold on to this combination of confidence and faith and humility and certainty that Jesus Himself embodies. When we wander from the actual example of Jesus, when we trade our assumptions, I'm sorry, when we, I'm sorry, blah, 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 when we, blah, blah, blah. I got tied up, so I'm just going to skip it. I don't remember what I was going for there. Here's what I mean to say as we wrap up. The thing that makes our faith special is this, this one thing. Our faith is the only sense that we have, if you think about it, the only sense we have that forces us out of ourselves, which is pretty cool. Faith is your only sense that forces you out of yourself, out of your own narrow worldview, it's the way that we pick up, in other words, on what somebody else is doing. And we seek to align ourselves to that. And I think that's cool. Maybe the Braves are going to win tonight. Maybe they're not. I don't know. They don't know. I hope so. That's not faith. But I can see God's story unfolding underneath my feet here. I can see God's story unfolding in all of you. I can see God's story unfolding in the long stories that we keep remembering generation after generation about people who trusted what they sensed even when they never saw it come to pass. And best of all, I can relate to all of this in the person of Jesus who not only invites me into that bigger story, which he does, but who shows me with his life how to live as a humble and small part of that story. You are invited into that story. That's what your faith is telling you. We 
get to try and line ourselves up with that story as a church, which is what our faith is doing, and we won't see it come to an end in our lifetimes. And the reason is because it doesn't ever actually have an end. God's story goes on and on and on and on. That's the thing about it. And as it does that, the cloud of witnesses grows and grows and grows and grows. That's our part, right? So the good news is tomorrow is All Saints Day. And we can run with them.